On today's episode, you'll hear Tanya speaking at an event put on by VHA Home Healthcare. This is the company that provides us nursing to help look after Caden. The event was called the Pediatric Interprofessional Educational Symposium, or PIES. Uh, and the person you'll hear at the beginning is Catherine Nickel, the VP of Quality Best Practice Research and Education at VHA. As you'll hear in Catherine's intro, Tanya had also presented at this event uh, a year ago. Her presentation was really well received. She got a lot of positive feedback, and Catherine had even asked her to present to VHA's board of directors. The organization is far from perfect, but it's clear to us that their leadership truly is trying to improve, and they have been very appreciative of all of the feedback we've given them, whether it's good, bad, or ugly. The theme of Tanya's talk was on how healthcare providers could provide better support to families like ours. Pediatric population, and in particular children with complex medical needs, has been a strategic priority of VHA for five years. And the steering committee was struck probably a little bit more than five years ago. And the job of the steering committee was to identify opportunities to improve the care that we provide to these clients and their families. And over the years, we've had a diverse group of internal uh, VHA experts, care providers, and parent partners come up with opportunities to improve care. And this was one of those opportunities. You're probably also familiar with Playdate, some of you. Playdate was another one of those opportunities, which is kicking off uh, very shortly. I'm very excited. So, so I just wanted to say that um, you know we're entering into a new strategic plan. We may have different uh, populations, uh, specialty populations, but the work of our pediatric team and the work of the steering committee is going to continue to move forward. What we've created over five years, we're committed to sustaining. Um, so there will be high days in the future, for sure. And I think that one of the things I'm hoping for is that we do something like this for our palliative team, because that's another team that has a variety of care providers from across our different disciplines uh, caring for the same clients. So a little bit about um, interprofessional education and bringing people from different disciplines and different uh, provider groups together. There is a ton of research that says if you do this, the care that we provide our clients is better. And it's primarily because we built uh, networks to communicate with each other. You get to know each other. You might call on each other uh, to collaborate around best care for a client. And the other reason is because we generate an understanding of what the different professions do. So as a nurse, I might learn today the role of an occupational therapist with pediatric clients. And I might see in my clients an opportunity where an occupational therapist might be helpful and valuable, and I might make that note for my coordinator to see if we can bring in OT. And I think that that knowledge and that advocacy for our clients to have a great care team around them is really what the benefit of an interprofessional education or networking opportunity brings for all of us. So my hope is, is that you meet someone today that you didn't know before from another profession and maybe someone who's caring for a client that you're also caring for. Wouldn't that be 
So um, let's see what else did I have to say here. Um, okay, I think that's it. So I just wanted to say welcome, welcome. And my job now is to introduce uh, Tanya Martin, one of our parent partners, who's going to give you her parent perspective. Tanya has engaged with us a number of times to share her perspective. She came to the board, actually, and um, they were, what, what can I say, significantly impacted by her story. It's so important, I think, for people who are five or six steps away from the front line to really hear what's going on right at the, at, in, in, the, in the real world situation. So Tanya lives with her husband, Tilak, her children, Avery, four and Caden too, and I'm sure she's going to show you pictures of them. Caden mm -hmm. uh, is medically complex and receives nursing care from VHA seven nights a week, and Tanya receives one respite shift a week so that she can get some of her work done. So Tanya also wanted me to mention that before she had kids, she was a medical researcher, so she has a tendency to analyze everything she does. <laughs> including being a parent of a complex kid. So I think that VHA can benefit from that analysis. And Tanya also has the incredible ability to create, to, to wrap her story around her analysis and come back with really practical recommendations for us that we can really easily work on and implement in how we care for patients every day. So she shared with us last year some really important tips and I'm looking forward to hearing what she's going to share with us today. So I welcome Tanya. Thank you very much, Catherine. So this is Caden, and he is my qualification for being here today. Caden turned two in April, and so I have been a parent of a medically complex child now for about two and a half years. So that makes me not quite a veteran, but not, not a rookie either. And since last year when I spoke here, I would say my skin's gotten a bit thicker and I have a few new stories to tell. But first I'm gonna give you a little background on Caden and his story. So this is Caden at a few weeks old in the Sick Kids NICU. And Caden spent the first few months of his life with a CPAP mask, a PICC line, two, his two feeding tubes in his mouth, um, legs casted. So that was not, that was not a good, that was a very traumatic time for our whole family. And at two months old, he had a surgery where they placed a trach and they placed a feeding tube. And that was a major turn in his quality of life. So after those surgeries, Caden was mo moved to Bloorview. So this is him at Bloorview around three or four months old. Um, and so while he was there, Tillich, my husband and I were learning how to care for him and um, getting our house, well, moving actually, and getting um, the new house ready for him to come home. The surgeries did help him a lot. You can see he's uncovered now. Um, but Caden has an undiagnosed neuromuscular disease that still means he can't swallow, he can't walk yet, he can't talk, and he can't be very expressive with his face. And this is Caden today. He spins around in this thing at the park. Um, there's lots of things that he can do, like he scoots around on his bum, pushes himself with his hands, he can go down slides, he makes his own signature smile, which I'll show you later. He says, I love you, like this. Um, he does actions to songs, and he really loves a good book, especially if it has flaps that he can open. That's his favorite. And as I mentioned, 
Caden can't talk, which kind of fits the theme of today's symposium of nonverbal kids. He can't talk because he can't use the muscles in his face and mouth, so he can't form words or make consonant sounds. Um, and so at the conclusion of my presentation today, I'm going to share some thoughts and experiences um, that I have about listening to nonverbal kids and, and speaking up for them. But I think there are other more valuable insights that I can share from the perspective of being parent of a complex child. So there are lots of nights actually that I lay awake thinking about what do I want people to understand about this life? And so I thank you all for being here and listening today to what I have to say. So first, the outline of my talk is show and share, which I borrowed from Avery's kindergarten class. So first I'm gonna show you the big picture of Caden's care, all the pieces that are involved, or at least all the pieces that I could remember. I'm sure I forgot a few. And then I'm gonna share with you what I think, from my overanalyzing everything, what I think is the key to being an excellent care practitioner. And in true self-help guru style, I'm just gonna keep that secret until we get there. Okay, so big picture. So I'm reprising this slide from last year. If you were here, you might recognize it. So I just want to stress the complexity, the administrative complexity of Cadence Care. So let's start with the big three. So between SickKids, Holland Blueview, and VHA, that covers most of our interaction with the healthcare system. We see about a dozen clinics between SickKids and Holland Blueview. With VHA, we have, what did I write down? We have five nurses, we have a nursing supervisor, scheduler, private billing services, all those people we're regularly in contact with. So, and then at the hospitals, there's also regular therapies, um, imaging, and treatments that we have to go for, for from time to time. So between these three places, we already have just a lot of people and things to deal with, and Kate and gets a lot of mail. Um, and I have to send a lot of me. I actually bought stamps since Kaden was born. File with stamps. Um, so it doesn't end there. We have our Lynn coordinator. We have occasional practitioners that visit us at home. We have, um, that says funding bodies, so that includes a couple of government agencies, charities, and our insurance that I have to submit very complicated paperwork for. We have our vendors, which help us find and um, get us our specialized equipment. Respite agencies, which we don't have one right now, but Emily's House, if you're listening, do trach invented kids. Um, <laughs> we're working on that. And our pharmacy, Caden's medications are compounded, so they expire after two weeks, so we're always going to the pharmacy. And they're always forgetting to put the little caps on the thing. Okay, so anyways, that's, that's the big picture. So the only people connecting every single part of this jagged circle is Tilk and I, the parents. So we're the only people in the middle of this that know every aspect of what's going on. Um, and sometimes uh, I, don't, I don't keep track of it. Sometimes I let things drop. Right now, for instance, Caden is not getting the speech and language therapy that he is entitled to because I can't remember who called us to set it up and who I need, what agency I need to call to make that happen. So it's, a, it's an imperfect system. So what does this have to do with you? Um, technically, not that much unless you want it to. So 
If you would like, you can help reduce our administrative burden by consciously being a strong communicator. And what I mean by that is there are people in our network that I know I can rely on to get things done and people that follow up with me and people that check in with me. And so I've just dubbed these people strong communicators and I know I can lean on them for support. So they can be anyone at any point in the system. So this includes all of you, all of you in this room. Um, some examples, I, I so appreciate when therapists take initiative and reach out to us for changes and follow-ups, when nurses double check and confirm scheduling changes with us, when people send reminders for plans that were arranged months ago, all of these things make such a big impact on things running smoothly. And aside from it just being practically helpful, it also makes me feel like Hayden is being seen and not forgotten about in this big system. So that's, that's the administrative talk. So let's move on to actual interaction with patients and families. Okay, so now time to channel all the self-help gurus and my inner Tony Robbins and tell you that you can elevate your client interactions with just one key thing. All right, so as you have heard, our family has traveled miles and miles and miles of this healthcare system with Caden, and we have encountered untold numbers of therapists, nurses, doctors, researchers, respiratory therapists, whatever, everybody. And if I think back over the last few years, there are a handful of people that stand out as absolutely exceptional care practitioners. And they come from all over, right? They come from every level of the healthcare system. They come from different institutions. They're men and women, they're young and old. We see them regularly or we've met them one time. They have almost nothing in common except for this. They have all been amazing listeners. And I put good listener, but I should have put amazing listener. Okay, so, so I'm gonna talk for a little bit about listening. Um, so the reverse, the reverse of this is also true. So if I think back over the last few years, there have been a handful of situations that have caused us a lot of frustration, have caused risk to Caden, and have brought us to the end of our ropes. Um, and in each situation, I can remember saying something along the lines of, you are not listening to us. You are not hearing us. <laughs> I am there right now. <laughs> um, it's not a good feeling. Um, so so this, is, this is it. This is the key. Listening. I mean, really listening will make you an exceptional care practitioner in the eyes of your patients and families. So let's talk about how. So I think how listening helps you do your job to the best of your abilities is it it just helps you, it helps you see the picture better. So your jobs as professionals are um, to provide information or care in an area where you're a trained expert. And we as families expect that you have knowledge that we don't have, or you're aware of risks and benefits that we're not aware of. Um, maybe if you're more in the role of providing respite or relief, we count on you to have a certain skill level of care for a complex child. But whatever role you're playing, you have some kind of expertise that you're bringing to the table. And it sometimes gets forgotten that parents have expertise too. And we know the specifics of our child 
and this life, this whole life, in a way that no one else does. We know our kids' baseline. We know what they can handle that other kids usually can't or vice versa. We understand the priorities for our family. So when you're listening, that helps you frame your expertise in the right context for each child. It helps you know how to solve, it helps you identify problems and it helps you know how to solve them. And it really helps parents and clients trust you and be more open and give you even more information. So you may think that I'm already listening to my clients. And yes, I'm sure that you are listening to your clients. Any good practitioner does, and I know you're all great at your jobs, so you're here. Um, but I'm talking about a kind of rearranging the whole focus um, of client interaction around listening. And I'm guessing only about like 10 to 20% of our care providers practice this really kind of patient-centered listening approach. So I'm gonna tell you a little bit about what listening looks like and what it doesn't look like. So I have some bullet points um, you can refer to. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell a story. And the story I chose is from the time that we met with Dr. Rappaport. I don't know if he's here yet. Um, but I picked that today because he's the keynote speaker. It was a very positive experience for us. So we met with the pediatric advanced care team so that they could do a general assessment on Caden and so that we could talk about quality of life and we were there for them to share their expertise expertise with us but we did way more sharing than they did we probably said 500 words for every word that they said and they listened and listened and listened and they validated our struggles and at the time we were really battling Caden's drool his secretions he has a problem where he aspirates his drool, it goes into his airway. Um, we were suctioning all the time, every five or 10 minutes, it was a huge problem. And at the time we met with them, we had made some progress on this and we told them, you know, it's getting better, we're only suctioning about once every half hour or so. And I remember his response was, that's still too much. ICUs can't even handle that level of suctioning. We can do better. And that was great validation, acknowledgement of the seriousness of our struggles that I was even attempting to minimize. Um, he was listening past my words and using his experience and expertise to help me see our struggles more clearly. So the resulting discussion surrounded different ways to manage Caden's drool, and we hit on one that we hadn't tried yet. Um, no one had mentioned to us, and that is reducing his fluid intake. So basically give him less water, he's going to be drier and not make as much drool. And purposefully keeping your child kind of hovering just above dehydration is not an optimal choice. It's not a widely recommended path, I'm guessing, since no one had recommended it to us. Um, but we discussed the risks and benefits and we decided it was appropriate for Caden. And I think it takes, it takes a bit of um, courage and confidence to, to give tailored advice and to travel off the beaten path of typically prescribed guidelines. But honestly, when you're dealing with medical complex kids like Caden, off the beaten path is just where we exist. It's where we are. Um, we're comfortable with it and we're happy when our care practitioners are comfortable with it. So fluid reduction along with his medication he was already on 
have become the two central pillars of this kind of life-changing secretion management strategy. Um, so if you're in a role where you're doing assessments or, or therapies with people in the home, I think you can apply um, these listening strategies to your job. If you are doing, again, more of a respite role, you're providing care, you're maybe not making a plan for your patient, but the same principles apply. You want to focus on listening and understanding and not explaining or correcting. So some examples of when I haven't felt listened to. A big one is when somebody walks into the room um, with a predetermined answer. Um, so they're just coming to deliver the answer and they're not interested really in what I have to say. <clears throat> so that happened once when, again, surrounding the secretions, I had endless stories with, <laughs> with this saga. Um, so I went to our doctor and I said, you know, we really, I think we need to up his medication, like he's way too drooly, I don't know what's going on. And the answer, like, just quick as this is, no, we decided that we're not going to increase it because his secretions are too thick. And I was just flabbergasted that the care team had made this decision based on their five-minute interaction with Caden and not on my 16 hours a day with him. Um, yeah, I was, I was shocked into silence. Um, I got our increase <laughs> eventually, but I think that has... Uh, that conversation really impacted me and has affected my relationship with that doctor and um, we've had conversations with them later about this but it, it was just it was a wall going up <clears throat> another thing is having an over-reliance on guidelines or being inflexible about how things can work um, there have been a couple times, for example, when a home nurse might insist that we have to do something as it's done in the hospital, even though I try explaining that that's really not practical for the home setting. And these are conversations that I really could do without, especially <laughs> on a night shift <laughs> when I just want to go to bed. Um, and finally, if you're assigning a treatment plan or some kind of therapy, there's a, diff a big difference between here's what we're going to do versus here's what I propose we do and what do you think and involving the families um, in that plan. So as parents, when, when we encounter these situations where we don't feel heard, uh, I mentioned this already, but it just, it feels like you're walking into a wall and we're committed to getting Kate in the care that he needs. So it's just a matter of kind of how many walls we need to go through or over or around and so what I ask of all of you, people front lines, people management, everybody, is not to put walls up, but listen and help patients and families find the right path for them. Okay, and this is kind of an aside, but it was too cute to not talk about. So that's Caden on the right and his little buddy Tyson. And they're really good poster kids for why listening is super important. Um, and aside from finding the path to the right care, it's also about recognizing that all of these complex kids are very complex. That's not, that's not lip service. 
and each one of them is so unique. So Caden and Tyson often got lumped together because demographically they're so similar. So they're only about a year apart in age. They're both trach-invented kids. They both have neuromuscular diseases. We live just a few minutes drive from each other. We shared doctors, we shared some home nurses. Like every time we we're going to appointments, people would be like, oh yeah, there's another trach invent kid. And yes, I know, it's Tyson, okay. <laughs> so, so demographically speaking, they had so much in common, but their care requirements were so different. Right? I would not babysit Tyson. <laughs> Tyson's mom would not babysit Caden. Um, and we would often tell stories about fighting for opposite things for our kids. So she would be fighting for that pick you bed and I would be fighting to not have to go to the pick you bed. <laughs> and both things are very critical for our kids and their unique needs. So um, there's a classic story about um, a poor nurse that we had in common. Uh, so in our house, we ask the nurses to wake us up right away if Caden's having any kind of reflux issues because he aspirates it and it's really difficult to deal with. So one night, one night this nurse hit the bell to wake me up and I got there and Caden was pretty far gone, but we got it under control, happens all the time. Um, but I just said, you know, you don't need to be a hero, just hit that bell a bit sooner next time. So. Another day, I'm chatting with Tyson's mom, and just, you know, the usual chit-chat. How was your night last night? Well, I got woken up last night by Caden's nurse because, or by Tyson's nurse because Tyson spit up. And I'm really confused as to why I got woken up for spit up. I was like, well, I can shed some light on that. <laughs> because I trained that nurse to do so. So this poor nurse did nothing wrong, but she had a great learning experience on the individual <laughs> needs of children and, um, and how to listen to each client's need. Uh, and so sometimes I think the road for people in the home can be pretty bumpy as you're figuring it all this out. Um, but this nurse is still with Caden, and she is, remains one of our best, most trusted nurses. So the point, and yes, the point of this story is you can't learn to care for Tyson or any trach-invented kid and know how to care for Caden or vice versa. So that ends my soliloquy on listening. Um, and I hope that I've managed to share some useful tips for you. I'm going to use my last few minutes to talk about communicating with nonverbal kids. So the very first thing I want to say is just a reminder, and I'm sure you all know this because you work with them, but nonverbal does not mean non-communicative. Um, in this picture, it may look like Caden's going to sneeze, but he's actually giving a big smile for the camera. And he'll do that anytime you pull out a camera, he'll just stop what he's doing. And and do his little smile. Um, so he also has a signing vocabulary of probably about 30 words and he makes his other ideas known through like <coughs> gestures. He's always throwing his hand, pointing somewhere. And so spending all day every day with him, I feel as though I can communicate quite well. So when you're working with a nonverbal kid, you really have to learn their language and they're all going to speak a different language. They're all going to have their unique way of communicating. Hopefully older kids will have more sophisticated communication tools that will make it a bit easier. 
but when you're working with younger kids, a good strategy is to just have um, a routine of questions that you ask to learn how they communicate. So how does Caden show he's happy? How does he show he's upset? How does he show he's hungry, etc.? And so that will really get you a long way in understanding them. And in that picture, Caden's saying, I love you. When it comes to pain in nonverbal kids, I think there's two main aspects to consider. One is how to recognize the pain, and one is how to address the pain. And so, of course, like everything, it's unique to each child. So in Caden, recognizing pain is super easy. He just goes like this, and he's very upset. Not someone else can talk about how to recognize pain. How to address pain um, is more complicated. And I have a story about one time that we failed pretty badly in addressing his pain for a number of months. Um, so Caden was doing his upsetness for a while. And we go through the usual routine of trying to settle him and nothing works, so we give him Advil. And that goes on for a few days. And it's not, we're thinking it's probably teething, it's gas, I don't know. And it just keeps going on and on and on and on. And it's actually months. And we kind of just get into this routine of giving him Advil every single day and we don't know what's wrong. And nobody knows what's wrong. We mention it to some of our healthcare providers. No one's super concerned um, because the pain medications ease the pain almost immediately. So it's just kind of this mystery. So then what happened was we went to his GP and the GP is has very little experience with complex kids at all and he was just bl shocked by this that we've been giving him painkillers for months and we didn't know what was going on so he just got on it and he was like we need x-rays we need this we need that he didn't figure it out but he did he advocated for Kate enough that I was like okay you know woke up this is not normal we need to fix this and it finally dawned on me that he was just hungry and I hadn't known to increase his food and he didn't know how to say hungry at that point. So we gave him more food and the painkiller stopped. So I learned a lot from that story um, and, are, and have become much more self-aware, becoming overwhelmed and complacent. I think the moral for all of you is that if you have the opportunity to speak up for a nonverbal child when no one else seems to be, take that opportunity and you might make a big difference for them. So my takeaways from today are, that I hope you take away from today, is that parents really appreciate help with administrative complexity. Um, and that you're gonna be a really great care practitioner if you can focus on making patient families feel heard and to individualize your care and communication. And this is the end of my talk. I will leave you with a picture of Avery and Caden. Um, Four-year-old Avery and two-year-old Caden, who is now the size of his bigger brother, so he is clearly being well-fed. Thank you very much.